morning. It's good to be here. It's always good to be in Texas. Um, I just feel like I'm more centered when I'm in, within the confines of the sheltering arms of Mother Texas. And uh, I think my favorite time is in the spring when the blue bonnets are in bloom. And I have seen them already and I feel like I've communed with my ancestors um, in, uh, in the, seeing the blue bonnets. And it's always particularly good to be back on the campus of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but if, even if you didn't go here, if you're a Texan, you sort of feel like Southwestern belongs to you. It's, uh, it is a, there's a Texas spirit here that um, is the envy of the world. Um, I grew up in a bicultural home. Uh, I know it doesn't look like it. I know it doesn't sound like it, but I did. Uh, my dad was a fifth generation Texan. Um, his ancestors were among the original Anglo settlers of uh, Bell County. And uh, he sounded just like Lyndon Johnson. He said, Rinch, pinch, inch, ice, rice, nice. My mother was from Boston, Massachusetts. I told you it was bicultural. <clears throat> and uh, she sounded just like Jack Kennedy. And um, as the oldest child, I'm told that when I first started to talk, I'd alternate. I'd go AC and DC. You know, I'd say, I can't do this and I can't do that. <laughs> and uh, I learned that people of goodwill can disagree about politics because my parents canceled out each other's vote in every election. And they were both wrong <laughs> because they were voting a loyalty to their family and to a region of the country and not voting their values and their beliefs and their convictions. Because um, my parents didn't disagree about much in the way of politics, but they voted against each other every election. And um, I also got this wonderful, I got a, great, a rare gift. I got Texas with perspective. I got this wonderful can-do, anything's possible, the sky's the limit, let's go, uh, spirit of Texas. But with the Bostonian mother whispering in my ear that biggest is not always best, loudest is not always wisest, and never do you wear Western boots with a business suit. <laughs> now that she's gone on to be with the Lord, I sometimes do, but while she was alive, I, I did not. But um, it's always good to be back. Once you take your Bibles, Turn with me to the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We will be staying in the New Testament today. In the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, it says in the beginning of verse 1 of the fifth chapter, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when his disciples came unto him, he opened his mouth and taught them. Now I want you to get this picture. <clears throat> Jesus, it says, sees the multitudes. I would put it to you that Jesus doesn't just see a big group of people. He doesn't just see each one individually. He doesn't just see them the way they appear to everybody else. He reads the fine print of their souls. He sees them as they really are. He sees them as God intended them to be and the tragic disparity between what God intended for them and what they are in their fallenness, in their, sin, in their sinfulness, in their darkness. And then he, he withdraws. And he calls the disciples to him and he teaches them and he gets down to verse 13 and he says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And he giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, I'm going to talk about this in chapel, and I'm going to do the second verse at the Land Center Luncheon afterwards, and you'll get to ask questions. But it's going to be verse 1 and verse 2. Jesus sees the multitude reading the fine print of their soul in their darkness, in their decay, in their confusion. And he turns to the disciples, the redeemed, and he says, you are to be the salt of the earth and you are to be the light of the world. Now, salt stops decay. It stops putrefaction. Now, I always have beef jerky with me. I have some back in my room over at the Rodney Center. I always carry beef jerky with me. First of all, because as, as a Texan, it's my patriotic duty to use some part of a cow every day. <laughs> Secondly, no matter where I am, no matter how, you know, if I get in at 2 o'clock in the morning somewhere, I can always eat that beef jerky. It's going to be nutritious. It's going to be fulfilling. It's going to taste good because it's had salt rubbed into it, and it doesn't decay. Now, if I had salt in my briefcase and had a strip of meat in my suitcase, <laughs> they'd be separating my baggage pretty quickly because that steak would begin to putrefy and rot, and it would stinketh. And it would certainly be inedible. The salt has to come into contact with that which it's going to preserve. There is, you know, you've heard some about this Benedict option, you know, that the church, the, the, the country's gone into Hades in a handbasket, and we ought to just withdraw into monasteries and, and, and build our little, our little um, um, sanctuaries and, and, and wait until the world just destroys itself and then come out and pick up the rubble. Well, first of all, if we are going to be obedient to the command to be salt and light, you cannot withdraw from society. And secondly, those who are proposing the Benedict option are woefully underestimating these pagans. They're a whole lot worse than the Visigoths. They'll come after us in our monasteries, and they'll take away our children because we're making them mentally ill. Don't you think that's not right? So we might as well fight because they're not going to let us withdraw. We have to be the salt of the earth. Jesus is commanding us to go out into the world, not of the world, but out into the world and to touch it. We are to be a moral preservative. There ought to be a direct correlation between the number of Christians in a place and the moral climate of that place. And if it's, that's not true, then we're not doing our job. We are sent into the world to be a, a moral preservative and a disinfectant. You know, salt does disinfect. Now, we don't use it much for disinfectant because it burns and it stings and it irritates. Well, guess what? When we go out into a lost world and we start touching it with gospel truth, it's going to burn, it's going to sting, it's going to irritate, and they're going to try to wash us out. But it also creates thirst. And there will be those who want 
what Jesus has to offer. I had the privilege of being at Billy Graham's funeral and um, I have a special debt to Billy Graham. Uh, my father was led to the Lord at a Billy Graham crusade at Rice Stadium in Houston, Texas in 1952. Um, you know, we wonder about Southern Baptists and how we were growing and how we, now we're not. Well, one reason we were growing is my dad and mom moved into a house in Houston, 1948, and the Union Association of Southern Baptists in Houston started a mission church. They said, there's a new neighborhood of people moving in. Everybody was a veteran. Uh, in the neighborhood I grew up in, you didn't ask what your daddy did, you asked what your daddy was in, because everybody's daddy was in something. My dad was in the Navy. And they started a little mission church. And my mother, who was a Christian, took my younger brother and me to that mission church in the early, in the early 50s. And they came and visited my dad. The men in that church came. They actually had visitation. They went out and came and visited my dad. And they invited him to go to the Billy Graham crusade with them, and he did. And he accepted the Lord as his Savior and became a faithful deacon the rest of his life. He was my RA director. He's a faithful deacon the rest of his life. I grew up in a Christian home with a Christian father because of Billy Graham. And of all things that have been written about him, one thing stuck in my mind. A longtime colleague said, I've never known anyone who more desperately wanted to please God than Billy Graham. What an incredible thing to say about somebody, to have said about you. I have... I've never known anyone who more desperately wanted to please God. And that, in many ways, was part of the secret of how God used him the way he did. It's interesting, people say to me, well, who's gonna be the next Billy Graham? Well, you know, it took us 2,000 years to get the first one. I'm not so sure we're gonna get another one in another generation. The greatest evangelist in the Christian faith since the Apostle Paul. But we are to go out and we are to be salt and we are to be light. Let your light so shine before men. Notice, we've got to be close enough to the world that they can see the light and they can feel the heat. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. There's no room in being obedient to the command to be salt and light, for us to go into a spiritual holding pattern and just circle, circle above the church waiting for the rapture. We're to go out into the world and seek to be salt and light. But if we're going to truly be salt and truly be light, we have to be saved. If we're not saved, we can't do it. The divine order is you gotta get saved first. Once we get saved, we go out into the world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the church preaches the message. It shows forth the true light. It lives the true light, which gives light to everyone. Who, and he came into the world so that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then we are to live out what it means to be a twice-born person. We ought to be people who are different. We treat each other differently. We treat others differently. We are twice-born men. 
we're born again from above. That's the only way we can be the salt and the light that God intends for us to be. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me over to the book of Ephesians. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 2, in a very well-known passage to all of you, and whoever it was, the, the Brotherhood Commission that lined up those verses for us to memorize when I was a royal ambassador, I'm grateful back when my mind was young and supple, because they picked some good ones, and among them were these. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and following, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace. We are saved by our God-completed faith. As we attempt to believe, God gives us saving faith. That's why we can't lose our salvation. It's not ours. It's his. We, believe, we say we believe in the eternal security. The Reformed tradition calls it the perseverance of the Savior. I like what, I like what, I like what uh, the perseverance of the saints. I like what Spurgeon called it. He called it the perseverance of the Savior. The Savior has promised persevere to the end we're saved by grace we're born again from above we're twice born men he goes on to say in the in, later on in that chapter that out of the the jew and the greek he made one new man new of a different kind two words in greek for new one is a new pencil of the same kind of pencil a new and the other is new of a different kind something that's totally revolutionary this is new of a different kind to make a new man we are new human beings in christ neither jew nor greek Neither male nor female, neither bond nor free. We are twice born men from above. We're new creatures. We belong to a new creation when we accept Jesus Christ. And that's just the beginning. Look at verse 10. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk therein. Now, to quote the late great Dr. W.A. Criswell, God never created a nobody. Everybody is a somebody to God. What this verse tells us is that God embroidered us and shaped us and formed us from the moment of conception to be the unique person that each of us is. And he has a purpose for our life. This is a word picture in Greek. It's it, when he says that you have, he before ordained that we should walk in them, it's like a pathway of footprints out into the future. He has a divinely ordained pathway of footprints, a plan and a purpose for every one of our lives, and no one can do as good a job of fulfilling that plan and purpose for your life as you can. Nobody. And, you know, people often ask me, well, that's, a great, that's great for young people, but what about those of us who are adults? You know, we've made mistakes. We've gotten off the pathway. Well, I have a question for you. Do you think that God's surprised if you're off the pathway? He, he, he may be disappointed, but he's not surprised. And a sovereign God has a pathway for the rest of your life that is uniquely suited to you to be the person that God created you to be and to fulfill the purpose 
for which God created you. We are saved by faith, but we're saved in order to work and in order to fulfill his purposes for our lives individually and as a church. And sometimes I'm fearful that our, in our very correct emphasis, that salvation is first and foremost individual. It's first person singular. It's a relationship between you and Jesus. We neglect to also emphasize that no one is going to be all that God created them to be apart from a fellowship with believers in a local church. He says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Why? Because God created us as social creatures. He created us for fellowship with him vertically and he created us for fellowship with each other. And when we are deprived of fellowship with our fellow human beings, we become depressed. We don't function well. This is one of the huge problems with the internet. Um, a, a, a sociologist at San Diego State, uh, Dr. Twinge, has pointed out, and, and you realize sociologists never use language like this, ever. They're afraid their tongue's gonna fall out if they say this. But here's what she said. Her research showed, without exception, I never thought I would ever hear a sociologist say that. Without exception, the more adolescents watch, the more adolescents are online, the more depressed they are. The less they are online, the less depressed they are. 100%. Why? Because being online, being connected online is like eating um, cotton candy, not nutritious food. You think that you're connected, but you're not. And you're spending more and more time isolated, more and more time alone. And you're, it's more destructive to the real relationships in your lives. And you become depressed because God created us as social creatures to interact with each other. And as Christians, we need to be in a local church where we are ministering the gift that God has given us or the gifts that God has given us to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're ministering their gifts that God's given them to us. None of us alone and apart are going to be able to scale the heights and embrace the breadth and plumb the depths of all that God has for us in this life. It is only together that we're going to grow to maturity and fullness in Christ. Now, take your Bibles and go with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're ever walking on this side of the of the hallway and you see a, a stained glass window with a St. Jacinta monument on it. And by the way, um, I, uh, I, am, I am a sixth generation Texan, so on, my st on the stained glass window they put up for me, I put the St. Jacinta monument because my ancestors were there. And uh, blue bonnets. If you look on the bottom, they're blue bonnets. But there's also this passage of scripture. We'll get to that in a minute, but the first part, let's look at, at um, 1 Timothy Chapter 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. God's will to save is as wide as his will to create. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 
for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. God created government. He created the civil magistrate to punish evildoers and to reward those who do that which is right. The sword restrains. The spirit redeems. Our salvation as a people will not come from Washington, D.C. It will not come from Austin, Texas. Government is a caboose, not a locomotive. When the people change, the government will change. The government's not going to change the people. But the government has a role. The government has a role to restrain evil, which helps to enable the gospel to be preached. And people say to me, well, you know, we're going we're to surface and we're going to survive in any environment. Well, let me give you the example of North Korea and South Korea. Korea was one country until 1945. One people, one language, one culture. And then it was divided right down the middle between a horrifically tyrannical communist regime in the north and a democratic regime in the south. Prior to 1945, Christianity, to the extent that it existed in Korea, was focused in the north of what is now the north, not the south. I'm sure there are still Christians in North Korea. Many of them are in concentration camps, if you don't think the whole country's a concentration camp. But South Korea has become, by some measures, the most Christian country in the world, per capita. There are more professing Christians in Korea, South Korea than any other country in the world. Remember, we have California. We have Oregon. We have Washington. We have, we have Connecticut. We have Vermont. You know, I think when the rapture happens, there be, won't be a leaf disturbed in Vermont. But nationwide, nationwide, South Korea is probably the most Christian country in the world. Having a government that allows the gospel to be preached without interference is a boon to the gospel. And that's what God's purpose for government is, to restrain evildoers. Why has Christianity flourished in the United States like it has historically in no other place? Because the government hasn't tried to suppress it. The government hasn't tried to take it over and ruin it. So, then it goes on to say, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. One of the articles I read about Billy Graham said that Billy Graham's theology was sinners in the hands of a loving God. I like that. Jonathan Edwards, he's not. If he had been, he wouldn't have been the greatest evangelist since the Apostle Paul. Sinners in the hands of a loving God. A loving God who will have all men to be saved. And that word will there is the word thelo. It is the word for an overboiling desire. God has an overboiling desire that all men be saved. And to come to a knowledge, the word there is an, an, an epignosis, a full knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That passage right there is among the many that explains why I'm a Baptist. God never created anybody for the purpose of going to hell. God created people knowing they were going to go to hell in spite of everything that God has done to try to keep them from going there. But it says that God has an earnest desire that all men be saved. Well, some would say, well, that means all men would have to be saved because God's absolutely sovereign. Well, God is so sovereign that he can choose to limit himself. He wants us to worship him freely. He will not turn us into automatons and robots. He desires, for some inexplicable reason, fellowship with us as he had with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Now, here's the way it was supposed to work. We come to know Jesus, as personal Savior. We then can discover, begin to discover who we are, why God created us as the unique human beings we are. And we are all unique, aren't we? Let me prove it to you. How many of you have siblings? Are you different than your siblings? Oh, yeah. And aren't you grateful? <laughs> aren't your spouses grateful? I certainly know um, I'm very grateful my wife is not her sister. Um, let's put it this way. My sister-in-law feels almost as sorry for my wife as I do for her husband. I got that off my chest. Um, I'll ask for forgiveness later. Um, we're to, we, we begin to discover who we are. We begin to discover why God made us the way we are. We begin to fulfill God's purpose for our life individually and as members of, of a local church. And we model before the world what it means to be a complete human being, a true born again from above human being. And we're different and people want to know what that difference is. We're light. We're lighting the darkness. We're not just, we're not just retarding evil as salt. We're not just disinfecting. We're lighting up the darkness. We're showing the way. Dr. King, in his letter from the Birmingham jail, and if I had my way, nobody would be able to graduate from high school without reading the letter from the Birmingham jail. It's a remarkable document, written on discarded newspaper from memory while he was in jail in Birmingham, saying, I'm in this jail because I refuse to obey an unjust law. And it's an unjust law because it doesn't coincide with the moral law of God, amen. And he said, we as Christians are called to be thermostats in society, not thermometers. Too often, we not only have, we, we've been thermometers or worse, we've been reflections in the mirror that are not a true reflection of even what is reality. We are called to set the spiritual temperature of society not merely reflect the spiritual temperature in society. We are to go out into the world as salt and light and bring the spiritual temperature to where God wants it to be. To where God wants it to be. 
Now, I'm going to talk about this in the Land Center address. Our country's in deep trouble. Western civilization is in deep trouble. Some say, we've lost the culture war. Well, we're certainly losing it. But it's not lost yet. I keep thinking back to June of 1940. France has fallen in six weeks to the Nazi blitzkrieg. And the Germans are bombing England and threatening invasion. Hitler says, we'll wring England's neck like a chicken. To which Churchill replied, some chicken, some neck. He became prime minister and he gave a speech and he said, we will never surrender. Never. Never surrender. Never surrender. Chuck Colson said, for Christians, pessimism is a sin. <laughs> it's a sin. Because whether, whether our culture goes the way of all cultures now or not, for Christians, our, our marching orders are the same. We're to be salt. We're to be light. We're to proclaim the gospel witness of how Jesus changed us and how he can change them and that he's a loving God who loves sinners and wants to redeem them. And Britain hung on, kept fighting until help came from across the ocean. Our help won't come from across the ocean, it'll come from above. But there's nothing wrong with our country but another great awakening wouldn't cure. And my Bible doesn't say anything about there not being any more great awakenings. It can happen again. Whether it happens is in God's hand. But we have our marching orders. We're to be salt. We're to be light. We're to be spiritual thermostats. We're to be churchmen. We're to tell people, everybody, God loves you. Jesus died for you. You're a somebody to God. God cares about you. God wants to give you abundant life now and forever. The one story everybody relates to in scripture is the story of the prodigal son. Why is that? Because everybody wants a dad like the prodigal had. Well, guess what? We've all got a dad like the prodigal. He's called our heavenly father. The one that Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. My daddy who lives in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Brothers and sisters, let's be about our Father's business. God bless you. God bless your family. And God bless the United States of America.